0: morning. Uh, I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not all, at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you." This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we turn to you after reading these scriptures and We praise you. You are the ultimate judge, the good and wise judge. You can cut to the heart of any matter, any sin, and judge not only actions but motives and intent more perfectly than we can even do for ourselves. In light of that, we cry out for mercy. We read these descriptions of sin and we either react in pride, feeling superior to the Corinthians, or we... Uh, Turn to our own shame recalling the depth of our sin and embarrassment We pray that you would remind us of the gospel that each of us would be reminded of our great need That such as the Corinthians were we dead in sin, but you O God sent your son Jesus that he might live a perfect life die for the sins of many descend to death and rise again victoriously from the grave And we thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, for bearing our sin, and we glorify you, the one who sits ascended in glory, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. Amen. We thank you for being our advocate and for sending your helper, the Holy Spirit, who empowers us to see sin for what it is. And for those of us that follow Christ that we are able to judge, although we admit we do this imperfectly. We pray that you would give us strength to deal justly with each other, forgiving many sins, but also spurring each other to good works and holding each other accountable. We pray for Tommy today as he preaches this difficult text that you would allow him to speak truthfully the words you have given him. We pray for the congregation who hears if they are burdened by their sin that they would reach out to others for help. We pray for the children today as they are taught downstairs that you would begin to work through your spirit and through their teachers to draw them to you so that they too may join in this body and celebrate your coming sacrificial death and resurrection. We pray for those who are sick or hurting physically in the congregation. Please bring healing. We pray in the season of transition that your will would be done at Mercy House. We pray. For the political tension that exists in this country, in our state, in our town, even in our own families, that you would work to provide a basis for peace, even with those who don't agree with us. We pray especially for those areas in the world that are war-torn, in particular for those in your church who are in the Ukraine, that you would provide protection. Preserve your church, O oh God, in the midst of the calamity of war. We pray further that your name would be proclaimed among the nations. In particular, we pray for those who are your hands and feet to the unreached. Protect your missionaries around the world and empower their work. Let it bear much fruit. We pray in all of these things that you would be glorified, that your name would be magnified, and that your judgment and mercy would flow. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: All right, have a seat. At this time, we're going to dismiss the little ones up front here. My lovely wife is going to take the first through fifth graders, the grade schoolers downstairs. Can I take this? We'll see you guys in a little bit. All right, good morning. How are we? Good job waking up this morning. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of myself. I'm glad we made it here. I'm Pastor Tommy. I'm, I'm really glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, one of the things that I'm really blessed by is that I have several really wise and loving pastors in my life. A lot of them served on the ordination panel uh, back in December uh, for, for myself. And one of the things that pastors talk about when they get together is what they're preaching on, what they're teaching on. Uh, What God has been putting on their hearts is as they try to walk their flocks through his word. And so we we got to talk about this a lot earlier this year. Pastor Bill over at College Church, they're working through the Sermon on the Mount Mount this spring. And Pastor Joe over at Second Baptist in South Hadley is working through the book of Habakkuk. Pastor Greg down the road uh, at FBC, he's going through a sermon series called Habits of the Heart. And they were just in Daniel this past week. And every time that I shared what I was planning to go through uh, in 1 in Corinthians this spring, all the pastors would kind of like give me an eyebrow. They'd be like, really? And they would say things like, wow, good luck. Uh, someone else said, oh, you're really brave. I didn't think I was being very brave, but that's what someone said to me. Another pastor literally, he put his hand on my shoulder and he was like, Tommy, are you sure you want to go through this book? Uh, And I'm not kidding. I I was like, I I think so. Like, I'm pretty sure I want to go through this, but now you're making me second guess it a little bit. And these reactions from the pastors, in case you've never read through 1 Corinthians before, is because Paul addresses the fractures that are within the church of Corinth without pulling any punches. And it's not like he doesn't do this in other letters, but Corinth in particular is a church that has this intense combination of characteristics. Like, they are incredibly fractured and broken as a church, but they're also, like, incredibly arrogant at the same time. Like, they're immensely broken, but they're unwilling to admit it, and in some cases, like, unwilling to see it. And so Paul has, like, a specific tone for the church. As we saw last week, Paul has taken ownership of the people at Corinth as if they are his own children. And that's really the heart behind Paul's strong words and his exhaustive writing. He cares about these Corinthians, and he loves them deeply, and he wants to see them flourishing in their faith. And so 1 Corinthians, so far, has been pretty tame. This is the first week where we might start squirming in our seats a little bit. And I'm not going to lie, this chapter is one of the most misunderstood passages of Scripture in, in the New Testament. Uh, and I'm convinced, really, it's because people take it at face value without diving into uh, the, the, the words and pulling out Paul's original intent as he's writing them. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And, and I'll be honest, I, I have wrestled with this passage more than any other passage I have preached in the past couple of years. And, 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 and that's not just what the passage has to say, but really, how do, how do I walk our church through these words? And so my hope and my prayer has been that we would spend this time digging into the passage, that we would just get a glimpse of God's beautiful vision for how the church operates, how it ought to operate in the midst of a very broken and sinful world, and how powerful Jesus' saving work is in the life of a believer. So let's jump in, starting with verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him him who has done this be removed from among you. In, In these two verses, you have this challenging combination which I mentioned earlier. You have significant ongoing sinfulness and complacent arrogance within the church and paul opens this section by saying that it's been reported to him that word reported and so this letter from paul is is a response to many things that the corinthians actually wrote to him about so they ask him all sorts of things things about engagement about marriage how to navigate kind of the cultural norms when those cultural norms conflict with the gospel they ask him about spiritual gifts but this along with a handful of other things that Paul is going to address in this letter, are not among the topics which the Corinthians feel are necessary to have Paul weigh in on. And Paul, like, heard this through the grapevine. And so this might be one of the first takeaways as, as we talk about maturing as believers. Like, there are oftentimes areas in our lives where we might not see our own immaturity, Like, practically, if I were to ask you all to write down a a list of areas where you'd like to see growth in your life, you'd write down the things that you're aware of, but it's possible that you might miss some glaring pieces of brokenness in you. Like, I know I would if I were to do this exercise. And so we talked last week about how we ought not to judge others or even ourselves because we can't see into the depths of our hearts. And this is why we trust God for final judgment and for accountability, but it's also the reason why we, 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 we read God's Word and we live within Christian community. And God's Word, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, this is something that Jake just prayed, it reveals to us these areas of brokenness and immaturity in our lives, and the Spirit matures us and transforms us as we respond in obedience and so Christian community, the church, further helps us see these areas of brokenness as we interact with one another. It, it, they encourages us to, to pray with accountability, to grow toward wholeness and holiness together. And this is like a beautiful spiritual ecosystem which God has designed for his church to live out. And when it's done, like when there is solid gospel-centered preaching from God's Word, when people in the church are hearing and receiving that, when, when there's this trajectory of transformation and healing, when a church family bands all together to lovingly support and encourage one another with prayer, with fellowship, and with accountability, like that is a healthy church as God has designed it, and it is a beautiful thing. Like, that's when lives are transformed. That's when entire communities are brought to life, and to a degree, that's when we get to experience God's kingdom coming to earth. But when this doesn't happen, things fall apart real fast in a church. And while Corinth is... Having this bit of a blind spot to this specific area of brokenness that we're about to uh, talk about, Paul, he's kickstarting this church ecosystem. He's initiating communal discipline and correction back to the gospel, and then he's trusting that the engines of the church would fire off and continue running after he leaves. What's being re- reported to Paul is that there is someone in the church, a member of the church body, and this is something that's important. We'll talk more about this in a little bit. This person who is actively in an ongoing sexual relationship with his father's wife or his stepmother. Now, it's important to note that Paul isn't addressing like a nuanced area uh, of sinfulness to the Corinthians. This isn't like if I were to to stand here and tell you today, like it's been reported to me like some of you are drinking alcohol, right? As if it were this black and white issue of sin that that we just all universally accepted. I I, I know that it's not for us, that there are different camps and perspectives on alcohol that both the world and the church have, and, and those are all across the spectrum. This is not the case with incest in Corinth. So there was nobody who was arguing the morality of having sex with a family member Verse 1 says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated even among pagans. So there's no moral ambiguity for this type of behavior. And Paul is pointing out that there's someone in the church who is openly and blatantly living in such a way that even the highly sensual, sex-crazed pagans who are all about indulging the desires of the flesh are like, ugh, you really shouldn't do that. And Paul will spend time later on talking about what is biblical sexuality and, 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 and why sexual immorality, and that is sex outside of what we see in Scripture as God's design for sex, like why that's so destructive to the individual and to communities. But, but as shocking as the report of what this man is doing in church uh, is doing in church, actually not the focal point of this passage. It actually is the response of the church to this man's behavior or lack thereof, which Paul takes issue of, and, and, and what we're going to be looking at this morning. Look again at those verses. Verse one it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has its father's wife. Verse two, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And what's happening is you have this person who's living in this blatant ongoing sin in front of everybody, and at this point, the details of the sin are actually irrelevant. It won't be mentioned again in the passage, but what is relevant is that the church is tolerating it, not even tolerating it. They're arrogant about it. The word for arrogant that Paul uses here is to be proud or inflated. It's actually the same word that's being used earlier in chapter 4 when he's talking about people being puffed up in pride against one another. It means to be filled with like a false confidence. And what's happening is that the Corinthian church has, has such a twisted and broken view of the gospel that it's made them think that sin and brokenness in the lives of its members are just trivial, And so the thought process for them, which is something that Paul wrestles with in the church in in Rome about, is that God's grace has covered their sin, past, present, and future, which is absolutely true. But the problem is that their response to God's grace in their lives is to continue taking advantage of that grace. It's like thinking, if God is going to cover my debt, and he's going to flip the bill, then I'm just going to go crazy and rack up the cost. It's free anyways, So why not just pile it on and pile on sin so that grace might abound? This mentality of treating God's grace in our lives as if we have access to our father's credit card and we can live however we want because at the end of the month he's going to pay that bill, this arrogance is what Corinth has towards their sin. And not that this would have necessarily led to them competing over who could sin more egregiously, But it brought them to a place as a community of complacency towards sin. This complacency towards sin, Mercy houses, is is brought about by two dangerous misunderstandings. Two misunderstandings that I, I think we need to really make sure that we don't have ourselves or else we will live complacent in our sin. And number one is a misunderstanding of the gospel. A misunderstanding of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that we have forgiveness in our sins, in Christ, and no matter what sin we've committed, what sin we're actively committing, or what sin we will commit, like God's grace is fully sufficient to cover our sin when we place our trust and our hope in Christ and follow him. But while that grace is free for us to receive, we, we don't work for it, we, we can't earn it, we, we don't have to have it all together in order to receive that forgiveness, it does come at a tremendous cost to God. God's grace in our lives is not like God paying down our student loans or paying down our mortgage, which wouldn't be significant or profound. Like if Elon Musk paid off my mortgage, I'd be appreciative, but I'd also know that the balance of my mortgage is a drop in the ocean of his wealth. Like it's not costly for Elon to cover my mortgage debt, but the debt that we incur by our sin is not coverable by any amount of money like Elon, Bezos, Gates, like all of them combined couldn't amass enough wealth to cover the debt of my sin. So God does not just swipe his holy credit card because of our debt. Jesus saw us in our debt, and he took pity on us, and out of sheer love and compassion said, I will pay that debt for them. And God the Father said, but son, it will cost you your life. And Jesus, leaving heaven, coming down into creation as a man to live a perfect life that we can't live in order to pay the debt that we can't afford at the cost of his life, did it. The the cost of our sin is the life of God's one and only son. So if your sin cost you the life of someone you love, your mother, your father, your sibling, your best friend, your only child, Like, would you continue on arrogantly sinning? Grace is free to us, but it is incredibly costly. If we don't understand this, then we will live arrogantly, pridefully, puffed up, and complacent in our sin. And so some of us might have this right understanding, this idea of costly grace within the gospel, but we still might be tempted to be complacent in our sin. And I think this comes from a second misunderstanding, a misunderstanding of sin itself. Sin kills and it destroys. And it does this by separating us from God. Not positionally. Those of us who have received Jesus's costly grace, we are adopted into the family of God and nothing can separate us, his children, From his love, the love of our Father, which is in Christ Jesus. You see this in Romans 8, uh, verse 31. But sin and disobedience fractures our fellowship and our relationship with God. Like, when my children are disobedient, I don't disown my children. Like, they continue to be my children. I think I can definitively say that there's nothing that my children can do that would make make me disown them or make them no longer my children if it's up to me but in their disobedience, like I would be lying if I said that it didn't affect our relationship at all. Like an afternoon at the park is very different when they're listening and they're being respectful as opposed to spending the entire time being disciplined. And one is full of joy and life and the other, not so much. And so God doesn't love us any less when, when we're being disciplined. We're not any less as children when when we are in sinful disobedience, but our fellowship with God is fractured. Our hearts are hardened in our sin. Uh, We we drift into living in our flesh, kind of our uh, pre-converted selves, as opposed to living in the spirit in our new lives in Christ. See, the idea is that sin is not merely like an external action that has no consequences on us. Sin kills us. It disintegrates us. It keeps us from joy and life that are found in fellowship with God. And if we understand the cost of God's grace, which covers our sin, and we understand the danger and the damage of sin in our lives, then we would not live arrogantly in our sin. We wouldn't be complacent towards sin. Sin in our lives, but even more importantly, to Paul's point in this passage, sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters within the church we have the right view of costly grace and the damage of sin, when we see sin in the lives of our friends, it ought to grieve us. Paul says as much in the second part of verse 2. He says, ought you not rather mourn? The appropriate response to seeing the brokenness in our brothers and sisters is to mourn. It's to mourn. Not to condone it, not to be flippant about it or to be complacent about it, and when we see ongoing, unrepentant sin in the lives of those that we love, we ought to grieve and we ought to mourn, knowing that in their sin that they're experiencing like a completely fractured relationship with God and with other people in their lives, even a deterioration of their soul. To not lovingly address someone in their sin is like finding them beat to a bloody pulp on the ground or seeing them sobbing in a corner of just like their pain and their, and their self-destruction and saying, eh, it's not a big deal. Like, they'll figure it out at some point. I don't want to step on any toes by talking to them about it. I don't want to make things awkward for them. Like, that's kind of between them and God. This is the main point of this passage. And Paul is addressing the church and their attitude and behavior towards sin. And he'll talk about what to practically do in just a moment here, but he's exhorting what the Corinthians ought to feel towards sin. He wants them to feel the weight of sin as it affects their brothers and sisters, and then to respond in light of that. Now, this brings up a lot of challenges for us. To be honest, there's a lot of reasons why we might be tempted to be complacent or shy to lovingly address the sin that we see in our brothers and sisters. It could be, as I mentioned, because of a misunderstanding in the gospel or a misunderstanding in the nature of sin. But I think one of the biggest reasons that the church struggles with calling out sin within a fellowship is, is when it comes down to it, we just don't love each other enough. We don't care for each other enough. We might say things like, I don't want to make things awkward between us, or I don't want to sound judgy, or you know, I don't want to open up that can of worms, or you know, I don't have the emotional energy to bring this up. But those are all symptomatic reasons, and where the root cause is that we just don't love our brother and sister enough to do it. Like, if, if I truly understand the cost of grace, if I truly understood the destructiveness of sin, and if I truly loved my brother and my sister, and I have compassion for them, like, I'm not going to care if things get awkward. I'm not concerned with sounding judgy. If I truly love my brother and sister and I see them living in self-destructive sin, like I will open that can of worms and expend the emotional energy and the time because I don't want to see them continuing on in destructive, sinful behavior. This is what Paul is calling them to in in Corinth. And this is what he's saying to them. Like he loves them as a father loves a child. He cares uh, more for their hearts than he cares about what they think about him. He cares more about their souls than he does about conserving some emotional energy, which is why he has this conversation with the Corinthians. People sometimes point out uh, Matthew 7 to say that we shouldn't judge one another, not really realizing that that passage is less about judgment and actually more about hypocrisy. So when you read those verses, this is going to be on your screen uh, starting in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there, is a, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so Jesus is not admonishing the act of judge- judgment or calling, uh, or calling out someone's sin. What Jesus is saying is that we need to address and repent of our own sins before we call out the sins of others. I think to use the example from this very passage in 1 Corinthians is that it would be inappropriate for this man who is actively sleeping with his his stepmother and and having this ongoing open affair within the church to then just like drop the hammer on someone who's being greedy or angry at church. Jesus isn't saying don't call out sin in others but he's saying hey take some time to address these areas of sin in your own life before you go on to take the speck out of your brother's eye and the reason is because sin can blind us it it makes us like we see in verse 5 there not able to see clearly And addressing and repenting of sin in our own lives also allows us to experience humility and grace through the gospel, which in turn allows us to then engage with others in their sin with humility and grace. If we're harsh critics of brokenness in others, it usually means that we're oblivious to our own brokenness ourselves. And so the point I'm trying to make is that Jesus is pro-engaging with people in their sin and calling them out. From a place of sober judgment, with humility, and with grace. When we understand the cost of grace, when we understand the destructiveness of sin, when we truly love our brothers and sisters, and when we have have taken the time to address the own sin in our eyes, to give us the clarity to see the sin that is in the life of our brother and sister, we are not complacent. We are not arrogant. What do we do? Look at the second part of verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. But Paul is saying that the church, with a grieved and mournful heart, understanding the severity of this situation, will let him who has done this, done this be removed from among you. And Paul is saying that a person who is living in flagrant, unrepentant sin, Who is showing no signs of remorse who is not living as though they have a right view of costly grace or the destructiveness of sin that person should be removed from the church and one of the reasons why we do church membership and have a church covenant which is something that we re-upped last sunday is is to give people the opportunity to identify publicly as a christian and the way that we, we do it is not necessarily exactly what you would see in the Bible, but we see it as, as a very healthy exercise for us in this day and age where our culture is one of very low commitment and it's very consumer-driven. So when you become a member of, of, of a church, you do something that is biblical by making a commitment to live out your faith, using your gifts to edify the body of, in, in a community of mutual accountability with one another. And so in the first century world, being a member of a church meant that you experience familial and professional shame and often persecution. So that was kind of the cost of membership in a sense. It wasn't low commitment. It wasn't a come on Sunday and then slip out and, and, and no one, whether in the church or in the world, would know that you're really a Christian like, like it is possible for us to do today. So to be a part of of the church would naturally mean intimately sharing your life with one another, eating meals together, sharing burdens with one another, suffering persecution together. Like you spiritually and you practically joined a family when you were part of a church. And that's what church membership means, a voluntary commitment to the community of believers that, that is a biblical expression of Jesus' body, which is the church. And Paul is telling them that with a heart of grief, they They are to remove this man who is living in blatant and unrepentant sin from this community, from this family. It's a very severe prescription. And the question we ought to ask, questions we ought to have, are what does this look like practically and why on earth would we do that? Okay? Those are the questions we're going to answer. Look at verse 3. Paul is telling them that that while he is not there physically, he's directing them as if he were. Like The decision that he's made is one that he makes as if he were there with them. And one of the reasons for this is because Paul's instruction here is pretty drastic. He's directing them to remove a man who's living in unrepentant sin from the church, effectively excommunicating him from church membership in order to, verse 5 there, deliver this man to Satan. So he's also reassuring them and empowering them to carry out this judgment. This is actually a really important text for us Christians to understand church discipline because it shows us the authority that the church as a body has. Almost every commentator makes special mention of the fact that these verses are not written to the church leaders. They're actually written to the church body, which means that the church body, that's you all, have the responsibility together to practice discipline for those who are within the membership of the church. This is another reason why church membership is important, not just as an opportunity to communicate to the world that that you are committed to the body of Christ, but to let the body know, hey, I'm here I'm in this with you. I'm here to care for you and love for you and the other members of this body, but please also care for me and love me, even if that means taking very drastic measures in my life. What we see in these verses are significant power and authority that are being given to the church body. Look at verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, the power With the power of our Lord Jesus. Like, in other words, when you are gathered together as a church body, when you are united in the name of Jesus, and you're operating with with God's word as the central focus, which is represented by the spirit of Paul here, and his spirit and his words have been recorded in Scripture, then the power and the authority of Jesus will be present. That's a very high view of the governing power of the church body in regards to handling matters of sin. One of the other standard texts that people go to uh, for understanding church discipline is Matthew 18. And this is Jesus talking, and, and what you see here from Jesus is almost the same exact thing that you see in 1 Corinthians In Matthew 18 verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then go then, then, uh, sorry. Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a gentile or a tax collector. So, while the situation here is different, like the heart of the offender is the same. It's someone who's complacent and arrogant in their sin, who repeatedly refuses to listen and to repent. The let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector is the same act of discipline that Paul instructs Corinth to do. To remove this offender from the church membership and the church community. But look at these next verses uh, again. He's not talking to the pastor of the church. He's not talking to the elders or the leaders. This whole passage is in the context of the church and and the entire body. Look at verse 18 again. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whenever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Do you see like the continuity here with what Paul is saying to the Corinthians? A lot of people will read verse 20 there and just see it as a verse that says that Jesus is with me and my buddies like when we hang out. Which I'm not saying is untrue. But in context here, Jesus is promising a unique, powerful presence when we gather as a church body to admonish and correct our brothers and sisters who are in blatant, unrepentant sin. Now, I think it's important to state here that although Paul and Jesus give us this really incredible power to the church body, this isn't something that's, like, wielded every single day. In the 22-year history of Mercy House, there have only been two instances of this type of expulsion of a church member because of repeated unrepentant sin. And so we really shouldn't read this and feel like, oh, no, which one of us here is going to get hit with church discipline today? Like, which one of us is not going to be here next week? This, this type of corporate and formal church discipline is an absolute last resort. So before we get to that last resort of excommunication, there are multiple loving, gracious conversations that are a part of informal discipline that we get to experience as we live in church community. You see this mapped out in Matthew 18. Like, there's this natural progression. If someone is sinning against you, then then you go and have a humble, grace-filled conversation one-on-one to help point out that sin in their lives. And I think eight out of ten times, this isn't an official data point, but just in my personal experience, like, when you lovingly confront someone and point out something uh, that they're doing that's harmful to others or their self, if they're a Christian and the Spirit is involved and you're using God's Word as kind of the, the lens of assessment, like they're going to acknowledge that and they're going to seek repentance. Like this is the best case scenario. It should be happening the most as a natural part of informal discipline and living in the context of a covenant community. So that's normal. Maybe two out of the ten times, they won't receive it. They, they, they might not believe you. They might not see their behavior as very harmful or sinful at all. And so then Jesus says to bring one or two brothers or sisters with you to help them see that this isn't just like a personal thing between you and I. and That other people in this church family are concerned as well. And if they still don't receive it, then you bring them before the church and you exhort them as an entire community, as a family, to consider how their sin is damaging to them and to other people. And you're pleading with them to repent. And then after all that, the person is still not able to hear. If they continue in their sin, if they're arrogant of their hearts, if they're complacent about everything that you've brought up to them, then as a last resort, you've removed them from the church. Now, why would the church have to go go through all of this? It's a lot. It's because of the severity of sin in the individual, and it's for the good of that individual. Look at verse 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The church is the dwelling place of God. We've talked about this in, in Ephesians chapter 2. It is a place where God rules and he reigns, and Jesus is building his kingdom as we speak, and when he returns, like he will create a new heaven and a new earth, and that kingdom will be absolutely complete. But until then, Satan rules this world. In various places in Scripture, we see him referenced as the ruler of this world. This is in John chapter 12. And, and even considered the God, little g, God of this world. And this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And, and now, like we know that he, he's not more powerful than God. You see this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. But until Jesus reconciles all things to himself, as long as sin still exists, Satan has power. And so when you take someone who is in the church, which represents the dwelling place of God and his kingdom, and you expel them out into the world, you are effectively, as Paul says in verse 5 there, delivering him over to Satan. Satan. Now, this seems cruel, but remember that this is discipline, which ultimately aims for their good. This is not punitive. This is not so that that person would experience, or the person in sin would experience, like, the wrath of God or suffer punishment from from an angry church. This is a releasing of a person to live the way that they are actively choosing to live. Remember, we're giving them ample opportunity to turn and to repent. And if, in the end, they reject that and arrogantly continue in their sin... Like they've chosen their master. And those of the spirit belong to God, and those of the flesh are of Satan. But there is hope, and that's what Paul is trying to communicate here in the second part of verse 5. You are, to, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The reason why we do church discipline is because of the severity of the sin in the individual. Like, it's incredibly destructive, but not just here and now. Like, unrepentant sin from an arrogant and prideful heart has eternal ramifications. It's a sign that you might not be saved. And look what Paul writes to the Romans, who I mentioned earlier, struggle in some of these same exact ways. He says in chapter 2, verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent, that word is, is, is another word for unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The consequences of unrepentant sin of an individual are eternally dire. Eternally dire. This is why we, uh, this is why we do church discipline. The hope is that as people are released to live in their disobedience, that they would experience the destruction of their flesh, that they would have like a moment of sobriety, so to speak, where they feel the weight of their actions and the severity of the situation, all with the hope of restoring them back into the fellowship with God. And maybe it could be the first time that they've actually experienced true fellowship with God because maybe they weren't truly saved before. The purpose of discipline and correction is for the good of the individual, not as a punishment, something that is for their eternal good. And having a church culture that takes sin seriously and practices regular, informal, and formal discipline isn't just for the good of the single person. It's actually a safeguard for the entire community. The entire community. Let's continue on. Look at verse 6 in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It was really trendy for every millennial to become a sourdough bread baker. Everyone did it. Even the question today, this was not prompted by me. This was unbeknownst to me. Someone just asked, What is, what was the question? What would you name your, your sourdough starter? This is very random. Anyways, everyone and their mother was doing it. Even I got a crash course in baking bread. So when you bake bread, you introduce leaven or, or yeast to the flour and the, and the, the, the flour and water dough mixture. And as that leaven, which is alive, works its way through that dough, it feeds on the sugar uh, that's inside of the flour, and that metabolic process releases carbon dioxide, and that's what causes bread to expand and, and, and to rise. Otherwise, it would be flat and unleavened, like our communion bread. And the thing about leaven or yeast is that you really don't need a lot. You need about one teaspoon for every four cups of flour, and that's because leaven is hungry. It is active. It is constantly feeding on that flour, and it will work through the entire batch. And so Paul uses this illustration, uh, which all of the church in Corinth would have known, to be able to uh, articulate a simple point, that, that in the same way that a little bit of leaven permeates through an entire batch of dough, So a little bit of sin can be pervasive in a community. One of the lies that we need to battle, that Satan wants us to believe, is that our sin only affects us. But sin can't be isolated to an individual, as if you could drop a little bit of yeast in a batch of dough and have it only affect like a small corner. That's not how it works. The reality of sin is that it causes widespread damage in a community, and it is contagious. When we are actively living in sin, it distorts our understanding of the gospel. We have those misunderstandings that we talked about earlier. We we must misunderstand the cost of grace. We misunderstand the severity of sin. And if the gospel is the lens by which we look through to navigate through this world, and that lens is distorted with an additional log in our eye, (laughs) It's not just us who are lost in the world, but those around us whom we lead, and now we lead astray with our distorted gospel lens and this log in our eye. The illustration is is used by Paul to further communicate the seriousness and the severity of sin in our lives, and the fact that it affects our entire church community. It doesn't He doesn't use guilt or shame to motivate us toward taking sin seriously and repenting. Look at verse 7 there. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul is saying that you ought to cleanse out the old leaven because you are unleavened. This is a very common grammatical tool that's used by Paul where the indicative precedes the imperative. So what you are determines what you ought to do. So Paul is not saying we need to remove the sin in our lives so that we can become free from sin. Paul is saying when you became a Christian, you were made new and you were made clean. Like that's who you are now as a Christian. That is the indicative. Therefore, since you are free from sin, so remove the sin, that's the imperative, since you really are sinless. So in other words, live like you are who you are. A a person who has battled cancer, when they are healed, they don't go back for chemo treatments just for fun. Like they live as though they have been healed from cancer. If you broke your ankle and your ankle is healed, you don't continue living in a cast. If you are a Christian and you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus, then follow him and live like the righteous saint that you are. Don't live like you aren't a Christian, powerless and enslaved to sin. That's what Paul is getting at here. This is going to be the battle for all of us until the day Jesus returns is to live who we are live as who we are in Christ, and to not shrink back into the ways of our pre-saved flesh and into the ways of this world. But it is possible because Paul says in the second half of verse 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So this is a potent reminder that the blood of the lambs, which which were sacrificed to protect Israel from the wrath of God during their exodus from Egypt, pointed forward toward an ultimate and final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who is Christ, who absorbed the wrath that we all deserve. And this is not just for one night, but for all of eternity. So Paul's saying that's happened. Like, the the debt is paid. The cost for our complete forgiveness and removal of our sin has been paid for by Jesus and his death on the cross. That card was not declined. That check did not bounce. We are absolutely and totally debt-free. So let's live like we're actually debt-free. Let's be who we are as individuals, but also as a church, a holy, unleavened new lump. That's what Paul, those are Paul's words, not mine. But he calls us a new lump. Living this out is a lot easier said than it is done. Let's read these final verses and finish for the day. Verse 9 I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world but now i am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater reviler drunkard and or swindler not even to eat with such a one for what have i to do with judging outsiders is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge god judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. A little fun factoid here, this letter is actually the second letter uh, that Paul has written to the church at Corinth. We don't have the first letter, but it's alluded to here and a few other places. Originally, Paul wrote that they should not associate themselves with sinful people, but they misunderstood that to mean that they shouldn't associate themselves with any sinful people anywhere. And so Paul writes to clarify there in verse 11 uh, that what he meant was to not associate themselves with sinners if they, quote, bear the name of brother. And so this sounds really harsh, but there are two things to consider here. And the first is that Paul is not saying to ignore them or to give them the cold shoulder, but out of protection of the, the holy lump, And as a loving, informal discipline of the individual, to not include them in the deeper fellowship of Christians. In essence, treating them as if they are a non-believer or a non-member of the covenant community. The second thing to consider is that Paul isn't saying we do this with all people in our church who struggle in these particular areas of sin. It says if if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. And commentators point out that Paul doesn't call out the sin, but he, he calls out the people. And so people who are publicly characterized by these sins. Which means that there's a level of arrogant, unrepentance, and ownership of that sin in the life of the individual. And so Paul is saying that those who are known by these sins more than they are known for their love of God, those are the ones we really should keep outside of the Christian fellowship, if they're calling themselves a Christian, and that's for the good of the whole fellowship of believers, since a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And Paul ends this section with two questions and two answers. They're composed in, six, in succession of one another in, in an A-B-A-B A, B format, meaning he's asking uh, uh, two questions and then answers them in succession. So verse 12, For what, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside whom you are to judge, inside the church whom you are to judge? And then he answers these two questions. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And Paul closes with a reminder that it is not the job of the church to judge people outside the church. This is a place where the church has failed catastrophically through the years. We as Christians have taken some moral absolutes that we see in Scripture and we've pushed them as imperatives, things that people ought to do on those who have not experienced the indicative. So it's like telling a person with cancer uh, to, to, to stop going to chemo. Or to admonish a person with a broken leg to just stand up and walk. Like, well, why don't you just be healed? Like, it makes no sense to enforce holy living and obedience to God on those who don't have a relationship with God or don't have the ability via the Holy Spirit to live free from the power of sin. And so if we have belittled or have been harsh toward or have dismissed non-Christians for, for not living like a Christian, then we need to sincerely apologize to them if you're not a christian here like i'm so glad that you're here we are not here to judge you that that is literally what paul is trying to communicate here but for those who are inside the church those who do bear the name of a brother who identify as a follower of of christ We who who declare that, that they have been saved by grace and have access to the Holy Spirit. Like, it's our duty and our responsibility to lovingly assess and evaluate one another and then take necessary action to help correct and to restore our brothers and sisters back to God when they've been astray. Here's the last thing I want to say this morning. While this passage is talking about how we ought to respond to sin in one another, I know that we can't help but assess the sin that's in ourselves. It's, it's natural. And I'm willing to bet that there's no one in this room who didn't wonder for at least a second, like, am I an unrepentant sin? Should I be under church discipline? Because I know that we all have areas of weakness and sin in our lives, like the thorn that's, that's been in our side, some of us for as long as, as we can remember. So here's what I want to say to you. If you are struggling Uh, on a regular basis, to remove sin from your life, regardless of what degree of success you've had, as long as you are struggling, meaning like your conscience and the Spirit of God convicts you, and you don't want that sin in your life, and you're taking steps to remove it, then that's not the heart of the person that Paul is talking about in this passage. That's not the puffed-up heart of arrogance and complacency. But this passage should wake us all up to the severity of sin in our lives and how we ought to treat it in our lives. Matt Chandler, he's a pastor in Texas, has a saying I think is really helpful. He says, it's not, I'm sorry, he says, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. Okay, it's okay to not be okay, it's not okay to stay there. We as Christians must be striving toward perfection to grow in the likeness of God by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. We we should be growing in our faith and our trust in God as, as, as we are truly free from sin. Nobody here in this room, if you're a Christian, you are not an exception to the definitive power of Christ as the ultimate sacrificial lamb. And yes, I know, like, you have your struggle. And yes, it might be unique to you and your past and your psychological and genetic disposition and the experiences of trauma that you've had in your past. Like, I don't want to make light of that. I want to acknowledge that, and I don't want to diminish that. But at the same time, whatever you've been through, the power of God to forgive you of your sin and to free you from the bondage of the slavery that you have to it is greater than all of that. God, like, help us believe that and live that. And so while those of us who struggle in ongoing sin might not need, like, formal church discipline, like if everyone who struggled with sin needed to be excommunicated, we wouldn't have a church, right? We are in danger of growing complacent in our sin. Nobody, like, that person did not wake up one day and say, I'm going to be puffed up and arrogant today. Like, there was a slow progression to that point. And so the temptation of ongoing, exhausting struggle is to be discouraged in our fight with our flesh. And to eventually drift into a place that's worse than struggling in sin, it's actually a place of not caring to struggle in our sin. A place of being okay with not being okay. A place of complacency, which might lead to this place of arrogant unrepentance. So if you're a Christian, you have the ability to not sin. You have the ability to not sin. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that before, but that, that is the truth of the gospel. And before you roll your eyes at me, like, consider that the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of you. The same power that enabled Christ to live sinless lives inside of you. So brothers and sisters, don't grow discouraged in your struggle in the flesh. For the sake of your soul, continue to battle, but then also for the sake of our church body, continue to fight the good fight. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, the unleavened bread, and he broke it saying, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. We use matzah for communion because it's it's unleavened bread. It's what the Hebrews would have used during Passover, and it's a helpful reminder for us that in Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. The leaven has been removed from us. So as you take communion, Together with one another, remember that Christ has forgiven you of your sins. Your sins are as far as the east is from the west. And so let us live as though we truly are clean and new. Let's pray. Father, you are a holy, righteous, pure God. There's not an ounce of imperfection in you. There's not an ounce of sin, any semblance of sin, anything that is untruth, but you are glorious. You radiate glory and perfection. God, we confess that we are not that. God, we confess that even as we have continued on in this faith, there are parts of us that are vile, that we might still be ashamed of, that, that we struggle with God. And we confess that sometimes we lose heart in our battle. Sometimes we don't want to fight. And sometimes, God, we jump headlong into the temptations of our flesh and of this world. God, we thank you that those of us who are in you are safe, secure, that you hold us fast, and that our sin is covered. But God, I pray that you would help us see the severity of sin, that you would let us see the cost Of the grace that we get to experience because of your death god lord i pray that we wouldn't take that lightly and so i pray that as we assess our own hearts as we see and live in in life with our brothers and sisters lord would you allow us to graciously and lovingly help correct ourselves and one another in this church lord not out of a place of arrogance not out of a place of hypocrisy out of a place of wanting to see one another restored and whole in relationship with you, God. Help us be a church that is marked by this, Lord, a church that desires to be like you in your holiness and your perfection, God. Thank you that you made this possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we pray that you continue to lead us as we navigate through life. I pray for those of us who have not confessed sin and put it in the light, that we would be able to do that for one another and experience the freedom of being forgiven of our sin lord we love you and we thank you and we pray these things in jesus name amen